Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Disclaimer, some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Some cases have many twists and turns, and in the end still leave you questioning, did they get it right? This is one of those stories. I remember learning about this case as a teenager and have been fascinated by it ever since. There have been many books, TV shows, and movies about the case, including it was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on February 16th, 1996, Season 8, Episode 11. Also, a film made for TV called Murder in Greenwich was released in 2002. It was a fact-based thriller about a disgraced ex-policeman, Mark Furman, from the infamous O.J. Simpson case who investigates the 1975 murder of a 15-year-old girl in Greenwich. 25 years later, the prime suspect, the girl's teenage neighbor, who was able to evade arrest due to his well-connected family, is reinvestigated by Furman and the original investigator of the murder. In June 2019, Oxygen premiered a three-part documentary entitled Murder and Justice, the Case of Martha Moxley, hosted by legal analyst and former prosecutor Laura Coates. And on August 10, 2020, Crime Junkie released a podcast on the murder of Martha Moxley. Martha Elizabeth Moxley, born August 16, 1960, and died October 30, 1975, was a 15-year-old American high school student from Greenwich, Connecticut, who was murdered in 1975. Moxley was last seen alive spending time at the home of the Skakel family across the street from her home in Bellhaven. Michael Skakel, also aged 15 at the time, was convicted in 2002 of murdering Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. In 2013, Skakel was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge who ruled that his counsel had been inadequate and he was released on a $1.2 million bail. On December 30th, 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to reinstate Skakel's conviction. The uh, Connecticut Supreme Court reversed itself on May 4th, 2018 and ordered a new trial. On October 30th, 2020, the 45th anniversary of Moxley's murder, the state of Connecticut announced it would not retry Skakel for Moxley's murder. The case attracted worldwide publicity as Skakel is a nephew of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, the widow of U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. On the evening of October 30, 1975, Martha Moxley left with friends to participate in Mischief Night, in which neighborhood youths would ring doorbells and pull pranks, such as toilet papering houses. According to friends, Moxley began flirting with and eventually kissed Thomas Skakel, the older brother of Michael Skakel. Moxley was last seen falling together behind the fence with Thomas near the pool in the Skakel backyard at around 9.30 p.m. The next day, Moxley's body was found beneath a tree in in her family's backyard. Her pants and underwear were pulled down, but there was no evidence of sexual assault. Pieces of a broken six-iron golf club were found near the body. An autopsy indicated that she had been both bludgeoned and stabbed with the club, which was traced back to the Skakel residence. 
Thomas Skakel was the last person seen with Moxley on the night of the murder. He became the prime suspect, but his father forbade access to his school and mental health records. Kenneth Littleton, who had started working as a live-in tutor for the Skakel family only hours before the murder, also became a prime suspect. However, no one was charged and the case languished for decades. In the meantime, several books were published about the murder, including Dominic Dunn's fictional account of the case, A Season in Purgatory, 1993, Mark Furman's nonfiction, Murder in Greenwich, 1998, and Timothy Dumas's nonfiction, A Wealth of Evil, 1999. Over the years, both Thomas and Michael Skakel significantly changed their alibis for the night of Moxley's murder. Michael claimed that he had been window peeping and masturbating in a tree beside the Moxley property from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Two former students from a lawn school, a treatment center for troubled youths, testified they heard Michael confess to killing Moxley with a golf club. One of the former students, Gregory Coleman, testified that Michael was given special privileges and had bragged, quote, I am going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy, end quote. When William Kennedy Smith was tried and acquitted for rape in 1991, a rumor surfaced that he had been present at the Skakel house on the night of Moxley's death, with the clear insinuation that he might have been involved. Although this proved to be unfounded, it resulted in a new investigation of the then-cold case. The Sutton Associates, a private detective agency hired by Russian Skakel in 1991, conducted its own investigation into the killing. The Sutton report, later leaked to the media, revealed that both Thomas and Michael altered their stories about their activities the night of the murder. In 1993, author Dominic Dunn, father of murdered actress Dominique Dunn, published A Season in Purgatory, a fictional story closely resembling the Moxley case. Mark Furman's 1998 book, Murder in Greenwich, named Michael Skakel as the murderer and point out, pointed out numerous mistakes made during the original police investigation. Even in the years before the Dunn and Furman books, Greenwich police detectives Steve Carroll and Frank Garr, as well as a police reporter, Leonard Levitt, had become convinced that Skakel was the killer. In June 1998, a rarely invoked one-man grand jury was convened to review the evidence of the case. After an 18-month investigation, it was decided that there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. On January 9, 2000, an arrest warrant was issued for an unnamed juvenile for Moxley's murder. Michael Skakel surrendered to authorities later that day. He was released released shortly thereafter on a $500,000 bail. On March 14th, Skakel was arraigned for murder in a juvenile court since he was just 15 years old at the time of Moxley's murder. On January 31st, 2001, a judge ruled that Skakel would be tried as an adult. Skakel's trial began on May 7th, 2002 in Norwalk, Connecticut. He was represented by attorney Michael Sherman. Skakel's alibi was that at the time of the murder, he was at his cousin's house. During the trial, the jury heard part of a tape-booked proposal, which included Skakel speaking about masturbating in a tree on the night of the murder, possibly the same tree under which Moxley's body was found the next morning. 
In the book proposal, Skakel did not admit to committing the murder. Prosecutors took words from the book proposal and overlaid them on graphic images of Moxley's body. In, in a computerized multimedia presentation shown to jurors during closing arguments. In the audio tape, Skakel said that he was afraid he might have been seen the previous night jerking off and had panicked. Though the jury heard the whole tape, during the closing arguments, the prosecutor did not play the portion of the audio tape in which Skakel had said jerking off, giving the impression that he was confessing to the murder. On June 7, 2002, Skakel was found guilty of murdering Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He was assigned, the Garner, assigned to the Garner Correctional Institution in Newtown, Connecticut. The prosecutor's use of the multimedia presentation during closing arguments was included in Skakel's initial appeal. In their brief responding to that appeal, the prosecution argued, The state engaged in appropriate and effective advocacy by using trial exhibits to highlight certain evidence and inferences. Just as the state should not be deprived of its most valuable evidence unless there is a compelling reason to do so, the state should not be prohibited from making its best arguments. The state's use of audio and photographic exhibits during argument was a matter of effective advocacy. The state did not, as defendant claims, distort the evidence in any respect. By placing certain exhibits next to the defendant's words or by displaying two related exhibits simultaneously, the state was making explicit the interference that it was asking the jury to draw. This is the job of an advocate. Michael Christo Christopher Skakel, born September 19, 1960, is the fifth of seven children, born to Rushton Walter Skakel and Ann Reynolds. Rushton's sister, Ethel, is the widow of U.S. Senator Robert F. Kennedy. Skakel's grandfather, George, was the founder of Great Lakes Carbon Corporation, a coal company that was one of the largest and wealthiest privately held corporations in the United States. The Skakel family lived in the affluent neighborhood of Bellhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut. After his mother's death from brain cancer in 1973, Skakel began abusing alcohol. He was a poor student and reportedly flunked out on dozens of schools. He was also... He also struggled for years with dyslexia, which went undiagnosed until he was age 26. Skakel's cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., later wrote that he was a small, sensitive child, the runt of the litter, with a harsh and occasionally violent alcoholic father who both ignored and abused him. According to neighbors and family friends, the Skakel children were given unlimited amounts of money and were largely unsupervised. In 1978, Skakel was arrested for drunk driving in New York State. To avoid criminal charges, his family sent him to the Elon School in Poland, Maine, where he re purportedly received treatment for alcoholism. He ran away from the school twice before leaving after two years. Skakel later attended Curry College in Milton, Massachusetts, and earned a bachelor bachelor's degree in English. During the 1980s, he attended several drug rehabilitation rehabilitation facilities before finally becoming sober. Skakel also pursued a career as a professional athlete. He completed on the international speed skiing circuit 
and tried out for the speed skiing demonstration team that appeared at the 1992 Winter Olympics in Albertville, France. In 1991, Skakel married professional golfer Margot Sheridan, with whom he has one child. Sheridan filed for divorce shortly after Skakel was arrested for Moxley's murder in January 2000. Their divorce was finalized in 2001. In January 2003, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote a controversial article in the Atlantic Monthly entitled A Miscarriage of Justice, insisting that Skakel's indictment was triggered by an inflamed media and that an innocent man is now in prison. Kennedy argued there was more evidence suggesting that Kenneth Littleton, the Skakel family's live-in tutor, had killed Moxley. He also called Dominic Dunn the driving force behind Skakel's prosecution. In July 2016, Kennedy released a book defending Skakel and entitled Framed. Skakel continued to fight his conviction. In November 2003, he appealed to the Connecticut Supreme Court, arguing that the trial court aired because the case should have been heard in juvenile court rather than in superior court, that the statute of limitations had expired on the charges against him, and that there was pro prosexual misconduct. On January 12, 2006, the Connecticut Supreme Court rejected Skakel's claims and affirmed his conviction. Subsequently, Skakel retained attorney and former U.S. Solicitor General Theodore Olson, who filed a petition for a writ of senatory on behalf of Skakel before the U.S. Supreme Court on July 12, 2006. On November 13, 2006, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Then, in 2007, Skakel's new attorneys, Hope Seeley and Hubert Santos, filed petitions for a writ of habeas corpus and a motion for a new trial in Connecticut trial court that had originally heard his case, based on a theory involving Gitano Tony Bryant, a cousin of Los Angeles Lakers player Kobe Bryant's and a former classmate of Skakel's at the private Brunswick School in Greenwich, in a videotaped August 2003 interview with Vito Colucci, a private investigator hired by Skakel, Bryant said that on the night of Moxley's murder, one of his friends had wanted to rape her. Bryant said that he did not previously come forward because his mother had warned him that as a black man, he would be framed for the unsolved murder. A two-week hearing in April 2007 allowed the presentation of this hearsay hearsay evidence, among other matters. In September 2007, Skakel's attorneys filed a petition based in part on Bryant's claims asking for a new trial. Prosecutors formally responded that Bryant may have made up the story to sell a play about the case. The new Skakel defense team also hired a full-time investigative team to review existing and new information, particularly a book written about Elon's school in preparation for the hearing. They argued that no Elon residents who knew Skakel other than Gregory Coleman had ever spoken out about Skakel's confession to anyone, including the author of the book. On October 25, 2007, a Superior Court judge denied the request for a new trial, saying that Bryant's testimony was not credible and that there was no evidence of prosexual misconduct in the original trial. Skakel's lawyer appealed this decision to the Connecticut Supreme Court. On March 26, 2009, a five-judge panel of the court heard arguments on his appeal. On April 12, 2010, the panel ruled 
4 to 1 against Skakel's appeal. Skakel then appealed based on the charge of incompetence against Michael Sherman, his lead attorney at the trial. In an April 2013 hearing in Vernon, Connecticut, Skakel testified that Sherman, rather than focusing on Skakel's defense, instead had basked in celebrity. Skakel also claimed that Sherman was more interested in collecting fees to settle Sherman's own financial problems than in defending Skakel. Sherman testified in defense of his actions while continuing to maintain his belief in Skakel's innocence in the Moxley case. Skakel had been imprisoned at the McDougall Walker Correctional Institution in Suffield, Connecticut. On January 24, 2012, Skakel and his attorneys argued for a sentence reduction, claiming that he should have been tried in juvenile court. On March 5, 2012, Skakel lost his bid for a sentence reduction. Skakel's first parole hearing was held on October 24, 2012. Skakel was denied parole. He continued to deny any role in the killing. Skakel's next parole hearing was scheduled for October 2017. On October 23, 2013, Skakel was granted a new trial by Connecticut Judge Thomas A. Bishop, who ruled that Michael Sherman failed to adequately represent Skakel when he was convicted in 2002. Prosecutors stated that they would appeal the decision. John Moxley, the victim's brother, said that the ruling took his family by surprise and that the family hoped the state would win an appeal. In his ruling, Bishop wrote that defense in such a case requires attention to detail, an energetic investigation, and a coherent plan of defense, stating, quote, Trial counsel's failures in each of these areas of representation were significant and ultimately fatal to a constitutionally adequate defense. As a consequence of the trial counsel's failures, as stated, the state procured a judgment of conviction that lacks reliability, end quote. On November 21, 2013, Skakel was released on a $1.2 million bond along with other conditions. He was to be monitored with a GPS device, could have no contact with Moxley's family, must periodically check in over the phone, and would not be allowed to leave the state of Connecticut unless granted permission, although he had since relocated to Westchester County, New York. In December 2016, the Connecticut Supreme Court reinstated Skakel's murder conviction with a 4-3 majority decision, writing that his conviction was the result of overwhelming evidence presented by prosecutors and that his legal representation had been adequate. In January 2018, prosecutors asked the Connecticut Supreme Court to revoke Skakel's bail and to return him to prison to resume serving his sentence. However, on May 4th, the Connecticut Supreme Court vacated Skakel's conviction and ordered a new trial. The court ruled that Sherman had rendered ineffective assistance when he failed to contact an alibi witness whose name had been previously provided by Skakel and that as a result, Skakel was deprived of a fair trial. State prosecutors in, the Stamford, in Stamford had the power to call for a new trial against Skakel. On October 30th, 2020, Chief State's Attorney Richard Kalingo informed the Superior Court that Skakel would not be retried because in Kalingo's judgment, the state would not be able to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So, in the end, Michael Skakel was released from prison and his sentence was overturned 
effectively making it to where the double jeopardy law applies. He cannot be retried or convicted for this crime ever again. Now the question is, who do you think did it? Because in the end, it remains unsolved. Did Michael Skakel did it? do it did his brother do it did the friend do it like there is no definitive answer to this crime but a 15 year old teenage girl was murdered horribly in 1975 michael skakel did serve 11 years in prison but did he do it what do you think that's it for today folks friends um as always leave comments um give me suggestions for future episodes i've got a few coming up um that have been requested so i'm excited for that um but yeah leave reviews to let me know how you think these episodes are going and i will see you next time <laughs>